Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely Skylight listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series. I am your host, as always, Maddie Gobo, events manager. Um, If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Skylight Books, if you're not familiar with us, is an independent general interest used bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California, where the air is sort of breathable today. Um, We are currently open for masked in-store browsing from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. We also do curbside pickup and online orders via our website, skylightbooks.com. You can also check out our upcoming virtual events for the month of September on our Crowdcast page, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Got a lot of good stuff. Um, We're already almost halfway into September, uh, which is crazy. Um, And the fall is just flying by, burning by, I guess I should say. Ah, sorry. Sorry to be a downer. Uh, I'm really excited for this conversation today, so I'm gonna I'm gonna modulate my tone upwards uh, and tell you a little bit about our guests today. Um, so we're gonna have a conversation revolving around the new book, Manufacturing Celebrity: Latino Paparazzi and Women Reporters in Hollywood, which is by Vanessa J. Diaz. Uh, And Vanessa is going to be in conversation with Elizabeth Hinton. So I'm going to read their bios so you can get to know them a little bit. And then Vanessa is going to give us some context for her book. And then they're going to launch into a conversation. All right. So our conversation partners today, Elizabeth Hinton is Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at Yale University and Professor of Law at Yale Law School. She is a historian of American inequality who is considered one of the nation's leading experts on policing and mass incarceration. Hinton's past and current scholarship provides a deeper grasp of the persistence of poverty, urban violence, and racial inequality in the United States. She is the author of From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, The Making of Mass Incarceration in America. Hinton's articles and op-eds can be found in the pages of the Journal of American History, the Journal of Urban History, the New York Times, The Atlantic, the New York Times Book Review, the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Review, The Nation, and Time. Elizabeth, thank you for being here today. So happy to be here. Thank you. All right. And then our featured guest, Vanessa J. Diaz. Vanessa Diaz is Assistant Professor of Chicana, Chicano, and Latina Latino Studies at Loyola Marymount University. She is a multimedia ethnographer and journalist whose work focuses on issues of race, gender, and labor in popular culture across the Americas. Grounded in her experience as a red carpet reporter for People Magazine, which is so cool. I love this intersection. 
Diaz's first book, Manufacturing Celebrity, Latino Paparazzi and Women Reporters in Hollywood, focuses on hierarchies of labor as well as racial and gender politics in the production of celebrity-focused media. Diaz is a co-author of UCLA's 2017 Hollywood Diversity Report, director of the film Cuban Hip Hop, Desde el Principo, and the media editor for Transforming Anthropology. Her research has been profiled in such outlets as The Atlantic, The Los Angeles Times, and NBC News and NBC Latino. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation too. And um, I just wanted to start by offering a little bit of context about the book. And of course, um, first and foremost, thank you, Maddie and everyone at Skylight Books for helping to organize this. Um, and thank you to Elizabeth for sharing your precious time with us. I'm so grateful to have her here. Um, it's really incredible because when Elizabeth was doing research for her book, From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, I was doing uh, the beginnings of my sort of more formal research for manufacturing celebrity. And we were actually living together for some of this time here in LA. So she's really been here since the beginning of, of this project. Um, so it's really special to be in conversation. And, and yes, rather than read a passage, I'm in the interest of getting to our conversation more quickly. I just want to offer a little context and some reflections about the book to help frame our conversation. Um, first, my interest in the topic really started to take shape when I began my internship with the New York Bureau of People magazine um, back in 2004. Um, and that was when Elizabeth and I were both seniors at NYU living our best college lives. So not only did we go to college together and she got to be there when I was in my, my beginnings of a People magazine reporter life, but she was also there when I was doing the more formal research for this book. Oh, um, and we can talk about that too. Yes, we can definitely talk about that. <laughs> Um, when I started the internship, I, I just immediately started to take note of the gender and racial inequalities I saw on the red carpet, in the offices, um, and then when I moved back to Los Angeles and continued doing celebrity reporting here, I noticed even more complex dynamics um, and started to notice the shift in the demographics of paparazzi to mostly Latino men from mostly white men, um, and I ultimately decided to pursue the research um, on this in hopes of writing the book that we're discussing today. Um, two main stories open the book about, about um, Chris Guerra, who is a paparazzo who was killed. Ob. He was hit by two cars while um, following the orders of a California Highway Patrol officer um, and, and was killed in that uh, altercation um, while he was trying to photograph Justin Bieber. The detailing are very unclear, and even though we don't know if the police pushed him into traffic, they claim he ran into traffic, but again, the details all provided by enforcement are quite murky. Um, and the way I articulate and understand his killing is that he was policed to death. And the circumstances that led to his killing had very much to do with the kind of public derision of paparazzi and the way they've become and criminalized, which I address in the book. And then in addition to Chris's killing, I also open um, by discussing the um, experience of one of the reporters with At People magazine who was sexually assaulted by Donald Trump while she was reporting for him, um, on him, sorry, while she was reporting on him for the magazine. And she told me about the assault in a recorded interview first in 2011 because she knew I was doing research on gender and, and race and reporting and photography and celebrity culture. 
And while I had seen the way women celebrity reporters were pushed into different situations, Natasha telling me her story was a real clear confirmation about the level of exploitation that women also faced on the job. So obviously their two positions are extremely different and both the paparazzi and the reporters are aware of this. Natasha is keenly aware of the fact that what happened to Chris never would have happened to her and what happened to Natasha never would have happened to Chris. And so it's really their unique positions and their identities and the way these uh, are exploited in the process of manufacturing celebrity that I really wanted to highlight and help us understand. And so there are lots of layers to work through in the book and we're in this moment in this country where we're interrogating structural qualities, but we don't always think about the way that these same foundational and structural inequality in places like government or law enforcement also impact Hollywood deeply. It's a major institution of the US and it's subject to the same kinds of power dynamics. And that's just not the picture we get when we look at beautiful glossy magazines like People and Us Weekly. And so I wanna help people get the fuller picture and the goal isn't to make people hate the magazines or hate Hollywood or celebrities necessarily. The goal is that you read these magazines or Hollywood the same again. So hopefully this conversation with Elizabeth sort of start this process of, of shifting perspectives on Hollywood and celebrity culture. So I'm really excited to get I, into I'm it. I'm even more excited. I have been um, waiting for this research for like almost two decades now. I've been waiting for, for, for you to write this. And um, as Vanessa mentioned, you know, we went to NYU together. And so sometimes I'll be lucky enough to come on um, some of her reporting names. And the thing is, I'm like way more into celebrities than Vanessa is. So she would bring me along to help identify people, um, which, is, which is kind of crazy. But um, before we get back into that, I want to talk about your book itself. I know that the listeners, um, you know, can't see it or feel it, but it is such a beautiful book. And I think that, um, you know, part of what you were just saying, it, like helping people get the bigger picture about like what this um, Hollywood industrial complex is and the manufacture and production of, um, of, of celebrity newsweeklies or tabloids. Um, you, you highlight that through the, the images that you use on both sides. So like the behind the scenes of like what it is to be a paparazzi and what it is to be a reporter. And then also the ways in which these stories are depicted in the magazine. So right. this is so not typical for an academic book. Um, yeah. And it makes it an even more invigorating um, read. So can you just talk a little bit about how you put the physicality. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the things about this topic is it's inherently incredibly visual. When we think about celebrities, we think about their faces, we think about their outfits, we think about the red carpet, um, and and we really can only place the celebrities, uh, or sorry, celebrity reporters and and photographers when we can place visually the celebrities, whether that be on the red carpet or another space. And so so there's this inherent visual nature. When you say celebrity, when you say Hollywood, you see the red carpet, you see, the, see all of these things, but you don't always see the behind this. So um, for me, I thought that it was really important. And I actually, it was something I was very adamant about with, with the publishers, um, that we needed to have color photos, that we needed that texture, not just to mimic, which it does mimic the the kind of textural quality of these magazines that we're kind of, you know, interrogating. Yeah, it feels but like also, when you hold them in your hands. It's really like, it's a very pleasant to read. Yeah, Even it's glossy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, so the, 
the thing the thing that's incredible too about celebrity magazines when we think about print publishing and and its demise in fact celebrity weekly magazine sales have continued to stay extremely high and part of that is people love to hold that glossy paper they love to see those color photos and so um so i thought that was really important in, in being evocative of the magazines but also you know, we're turning the camera around. So when you think of a red carpet, you don't think of the reporters, you think of the celebrities. But I'm showing you what the red carpet while you're thinking about what's on the other side of it. And same thing with the paparazzi, having them, you know, they are constantly um, derided publicly. They're these really most hated figures in Hollywood, to be quite frank. And that extends into the broader social realm because of the amount of importance we put on celebrities. And so being able to actually have color photos of them, they take color photos and these photos circulate and generate money of celebrities who are mostly white. It's mostly white women, frankly, that sell in terms of the images, but it's, you know, Hollywood is predominantly white. That's why we know about Oscar so white it's because that's the kind of work we're working within. And so to have to have that completely turned around and say, well, yeah, we're going to feature these beautiful photos of these beautiful celebrities that these paparazzi take, but we're also going to look at these beautiful of the paparazzi themselves and, and what their day-to-day -day life looks like. Because we want to see celebrities at the grocery store or Starbucks or, you know, on the red carpet. But what do paparazzi look like when they're actually on the job? Right, which um, includes, and what is their which includes you know, um, Gallo, one of the photographers you work with, you've got this great shot in the book where he's like perched in a tree and you have groups of paparazzi there and they become in the book through the use of your images, the central subjects of the story. So, okay, I, you know, I'm a historian, you're an anthropologist. So I want to talk some about the kind of emergence of these things, which happened while we were at NYU. So, and Vanessa writes about this in the book. Um, me and Vanessa were the 9-11 class at NYU. So we uh, showed up to NYU and then into our first year, um, the World Trade Center was hit. And of course we were all living in um, downtown area below 14th Street near Ground Zero. There were a lot of students who were living at Ground Zero. And, one of the things, as somebody who, you know, I mentioned and really interested in celebrity culture, probably know way too much about celebrities' <laughs> personal lives as you write about book, those kind of people. And when I was little, I used to read Us Magazine, which was a lot more like people mm -hmm. in the 90s. And then all of a sudden, after 9-11, Us Magazine became this glossy thing. And then all of these other tabloids started popping up. And all of a sudden, in the context of the war on terror, there's this like new celebrity in industry. Can you talk about that concept? And that's also when you're beginning to do your reporting right. for people. Absolutely. No, this is this is so, so important. Introduction to the book. I'm sure the historian and you was drawn to the the, the People magazine um, put forth because People magazine used to be a column at the back of, sorry, not People Magazine. People was a column at the back of time that had a little bit about celebrity. And then as, as you know, the People Magazine starts officially as a magazine in 1974. And so their whole premise, and if you, if you look at, at what I've included in the book, their whole premise is the Vietnam War is coming to an end. You know, civil rights is kind of 
rounding out like people aren't marching in the streets as much anymore we're moving into this new phase and you know everyone's really ripe for distraction and and for interesting personalities and and let's offer them that in in the frame of this magazine and and so really what people magazine was created for it was created to be a distraction from all of the seriousness of war and anti-war movements and black power movements and brown power, all these different movements that have been coming together over the last, you know, 15 years, really, you know, the 60s and 70s are this critical time in terms of social activism. And obviously before that as well, but, but that concentration of time was so important in this country. And so the magazine is a complete contrast to that. And that was the intention. And then, yeah, People has no direct competition in the U.S. until 2000 when Us Magazine, which, you know, as you mentioned, it, it, it existed prior to that. It actually started in 1977, but it was a more trade-focused, bi-monthly, and then monthly publication. And it relaunched as a weekly in 2000. So, so 2000, you know, the year before 9-11, is when us relaunches and then it's not until after 9-11 that you have the combination of us becoming you know a weekly the year before and then you have between 2002 and 2005 in touch life and style um and these were coming out like literally while i was on the red carpet um Star revamped too. Star went from being Star? like an inquirer to one of the glossies. Precisely. You've got Star relaunching as a weekly. You have the British magazine OK creating a US version. And so while the branding and reputation of these magazines sort of vary some, they all shared this common focus on celebrity content and glossy image heavy aesthetic. And it really wasn't an accident. I mean, if you think about why people started, this is why all these other magazines started. There was much there distraction there and so I think that that also helps to really provide context for the way that I conceptualize the Hollywood industrial complex there is this inextricable link to the state that that term in and of itself it's evocative of these things but speaks specifically to the way that Hollywood works it really helps us to underscore this relationship to the state that has always been central to Hollywood, from the production code to movies that fueled, you know, interest and, and favor in wars um, and foreign policy. That's always been the role of Hollywood. And so it's no accident that these magazines that are the central piece of the structure of the Hollywood industrial complex expanded during this time. And did, um, did, did and the that, demographics of the paparazzi also change? at time so after that yeah so that's when it started it was it was basically between 2000 between 2002 and 2008 was really when the demographic shift was complete the inundation of the number of magazines required this intense competition for photos and the photos that they want are not the red carpet photos on the red carpet can get it was exclusive photos so all all of these meeting for exclusive photos meaning they need more people out there doing the work and it started it was that um, originally X17 one of the agencies gave a camera to LA workers when you think about who they they thought you know who's doing work sort of undercover ish in these spaces that celebrities frequent so they started going to the pretty hot spots and giving ballet workers cameras and they took really good pictures. And so then they said, well, do you want to come work for us? And if, if and for anyone who knows anything about immigrant networks and labor, 
very efficient. That's why we have such an incredible network of immigrant laborers in this country. And so it became this highly profitable way, especially when you compare it to the other kinds of work that were available to, you know, predominantly uh, Latino and not college educated men. Um, and even outside of the Latino demographic, it's almost exclusively men of color across the board. Um, so yes, you had this expansion of the magazines that also coincided with the expansion of the paparazzi and that shift in the demographic, which also fits perfectly into sort of like neoliberal politics. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, what you're saying, what the book says and the ways in which it centers, it only ties this industry to the state, but also recenters um, gender, racial, um, power dynamics, uh, gender dynamics, I already said that, um, into the ways in which this media is produced. And, you know, I think what's at, what be, emerges at the center of that, or, or what feels different about um, your analysis in terms of the, uh, the exploitation, the criminalization, the surveillance of mostly uh, Latino, but all men of color, pretty much, with the exception of like one or two paparazza that you mentioned. Um, and, and so I, can you talk a little bit about um, the kind of context in which the, these paparazzi are operating in, in the larger um, anti, deeply anti-immigrant state policies that have been enacted um, and performed in the, in the very state, alongside literally the rise of this industry and the paparazzi as part of um, the war on terror. You know, one of the quotes that you use early on is like Miley Cyrus, talking about um, Chris Guerra, who was, was involved in, um, or we're not sure, whatever, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know exactly how to say it, but died under very questionable circumstances involving the police. Um, and, you know, animalistic language is used, and they're, they're seen as like this enemy in Hollywood that, you know, very much parallels the rhetoric that we hear about immigrants um, in our political discourse. So can you talk a little bit about some of those connections and like racism against the paparazzi and anti-immigrant sentiments against the paparazzi within this larger national anti-immigrant project. Absolutely, yeah, I think, I think that is so important. And I think it's also just important to remember that this, this is so cyclical with all different kinds of, of racialized populations that specifically with Latinos over, over the last several decades, we've had these moments of like, sort of like, Latin culture explosions, like everyone's into Gloria Estefan in the 80s and 90s, but the like anti-immigrant sentiment is so strong. And like right now is this time where, you know, Bad Bunny and Osuna and all of these like reggaeton artists are like the biggest thing all across the country. And yet we're having this mass anti-immigrant sentiment. So it's, so it's these really con sort of contrasting um, cultural politics um, and paparazzi are very, very much um, kind of caught in, in this, Hollywood where, you know, they perform this labor that's viewed as like a kind of underclass function and they get targeted and derided in these really racialized ways that I think because people don't take the time to understand who the paparazzi are and they have historically, even prior to the racialization, paparazzi were not particularly liked in Hollywood, but they weren't talked about in these racialized ways and their work wasn't targeted legally 
in the ways that it's become targeted. Those are the distinctions because people are like, well, especially historians, they're always like, well, people didn't like paparazzi before, you know, people, like, there's like foundational stories of Ron Galella who took the really famous pictures of, of uh, Jackie Kennedy and they had a huge feud, um, but he was, he's, you know, his work is in the Smithsonian. He's not, he's not someone who's being sort of derided publicly in the same way and certainly not in racialized terms. Is he a white photographer? <laughs> right. They really were almost all, um, until this demographic shift, they were almost all white. Um, and interestingly, when we talk about this immigrant, uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, they were mostly white immigrants. In LA, for example, it was a lot of people from the UK and from France, not, not racialized in the same way. But as soon as the demographic of the immigrants shifted, that's when and they're not even all immigrants, right? That's another common misconception that all Latinos are immigrants. Many of these are US born Latinos and there and many are are immigrants as well. But so You the, said about fifty percent are on fifty percent are undocumented. I say is mes 50% based on the calculations and the sort of surveys that I took, but it's hard to know precisely because it's not something that they're like sort of openly um, discussing, right. but I, but I tried to get the, the closest to accurate numbers possible. Yeah. And then of course, there's also people like Gallo while he was, you know, working with me on this research, he actually got um, his citizenship. So there's people who were on drum. You know, he was a refugee here from the, the Salvadoran civil war as a child. So these are people with really deep, complicated histories who, I mean, if you know about the Salvadoran civil war, you know it had everything to do with US foreign policy in Latin America and, and Central America. And so he's the result of this US policy. And then he comes here and occupies the space where he's promoting mainstream white culture and getting racialized and demonized in this process. And, and yeah, the language that started to be used, if you, if you look at um, footage of celebrities like Jennifer Garner testifying in the California state legislature for these anti-paparazzi laws, calls them large aggressive men, gangs of frightening men who are traumatizing her children. People talk about them as thugs, other people in the industry. And there's quotes from AP, LA Times, New York Times, saying things like, these are knuckle scraping mouth breathers who could be robbing 7-Elevens, but instead they're taking pictures of celebrities. I mean, the language itself is terrible. And then if you look at the laws, laws like SB 606, which California passed a few years ago, saying it's illegal to take pictures of a child because of the parent's job, which basically is for celebrities. And that law makes it so that they charge the paparazzo directly. But if a magazine publishes it world they've broken no law only the disproportionately you know men of color who are taking these images can be charged not the predominantly white institutions actually monetizing these images um and if you go to malib you see signs that start to feel evocative of like the wall um kind of language it's like keep paparazzi out zone. Um, one of the main lobbying groups called the Paparazzi Reform Initiative, they have signs that, you know, their they're like promotional materials are hate paparazzi, keep, we long to be paparazzi free. You can substitute any of these out with any term having to do with immigrants and, and Latinx communities. 
And so it's not accidental. The, the shift in the treatment um, legally is not. Yeah, that's such a key, key shift that all of a sudden and the profession gets browner that, all, that these new legal criminalizing sanctions that punish paparazzi, not the magazines, harshly are enacted. I think that's really key. Right. Okay, so you mentioned Jennifer Garner, and I was, um, in your book, um, Vanessa quotes her testimony, which is, which, you know, is really alarming. Um, with you, like from Jennifer Garner and all these other, and what's her face, Kristen Bell, <laughs> Who, who talks about paparazzi as paparazzi. Kristen Bell coins the term pederazzi in promotion of the law SB 606, the California law. So, so, where do you, so where do you stand on their arguments, which is like, I'm just trying to be a mom and go to the pumpkin patch with my, with my kids, and all of a sudden we're getting stalked by these whatever near expletives Jennifer Aniston or Jennifer Garner used to describe the paparazzi. Um, you know, where do you stand? Because I'm sure you've observed these things. Absolutely. Um, you've observed paparazzi maybe ruining a celebrity's day or maybe making a celebrity's day. Can you explain those dynamics and where you stand on that after doing all this research? Absolutely. No, this is so important. And, and you know, I think, you know, you as a parent relate to this material differently than, than I do at this moment in my life. And I think a lot of parents have visceral reactions. And that's what the, that's what the celebrities are appealing to. Again, mostly white women, celebrities, appealing to this sort of like very particular kind of vulnerability narrative. Um, but th there's a lot to say here. And I'll try to be as sort of but there's so much happening. The first thing that's important to know that, again, this is part of my like wanting to pull back the curtain on Hollywood is the celebrities actually collaborate quite a bit with the paparazzi, but that's really not something they want you to know. So for a celebrity to say, oh yes, I like it when the paparazzi take my images because it sells my image and then I get more famous out of it and they like to see me at these different locations because I look cute with my kids and my kids look cute and we're in bright colorful photos. And you know, they don't want to say that because the whole thing is to appeal to a mass audience, you know, the celebrities want to seem humble. I'm being chased and it's like so terrible and like, won't they just leave me alone? And, and that's, that's like not taking into consideration the fact that the very presence of the paparazzi indicates importance. So you are actually highlighting how famous you are, but trying to seem humble about it by saying, oh, these paparazzi are just like on me all the time. I mean, Jennifer Garner famously said in this documentary about paparazzi that the paparazzi keep her in a state of false imprisonment where the paparazzi are actually held in false imprisonment by security guards and other people who, who um, physically assault them while they're supposed to be doing their job for optics. They get assaulted literally. Like one of the examples I talk about in the book is the, the bachelor wedding where the paparazzi are sent to photograph. Like they're sent there by the agencies, the network invites them, they get assaulted, they're held in false imprisonment. And that footage is used in the bachelor wedding uh, video to show how important it was that they had to beat down paparazzi. So there's this visual nature, Hollywood is a performance. There's this visual nature where that's what celebrities want you to think. 
Whereas, for example, Jennifer Garner, it's really ironic, she actually had a friendly relationship with Chris, the paparazzi who was killed. And some of his last photos that sold and of course continue to circulate, that's what's fascinating. He gets killed and Hollywood doesn't. Miley Cyrus derides him in his death. All of these celebrities are like, oh, paparazzi are the worst, even though Chris just died. And the images he took of them can make money, continue to sell celebrity. So he had these beautiful pictures of her and her son um, at the grocery store and she saw him and his camera and she said, sure, go ahead and take the pictures. Just, I don't want him to see you. So like, which is usually the goal. Paparazzi want to kind of be discreet to get the candid shot. They had a cordial relationship. Celebrities, particularly those who live in LA, interact with paparazzi enough that many of them know each other. Many celebrities have paparazzi's phone numbers. I mean, in the early days of the Kardashians, me, Kim had, they all had her number and she had their number. And anytime she wanted a picture, she got it because there's a lot of collaboration in this way. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And then the other thing is this question, like you said, to think, what, what are they really thinking about? Is it really privacy? And I, I understand the idea of wanting to make it seem like it's privacy, but I think the question isn't so much, do they have privacy or not? It's where do we enforce the privacy at the level of paparazzi? Or, because the magazines have the power not to run or to run certain photos. They have economic power to give more money for certain photos. And so we could incentivize them with the laws and instead the laws target the paparazzi and don't incentivize magazines to do anything. And then the other part of it is, you know, do, is the real issue privacy or is it the celebrity's ability to monetize their own uh, images? Like there's the controversy right now with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and they bring their family to LA and now they want a lawsuit against paparazzi for taking these images. There are many places you can live where you can avoid paparazzi more than here. And if they really didn't want to, my perspective is that they would move to rural wherever mm -hmm. um, where it's not worth it for them to go. But someone like Kristen Bell, who launches this pederazzi law initiative, calling it, making it seem as if pa paparazzi taking pictures of her children is the same as their molestation or akin to their molestation. She had the first pictures of her children of her child taken outside of a Starbucks, I believe it was a paparazzi shot. Those sold really well. So what it did was it made it so that the exclusives that she could have got paid a lot of money from direct from the magazines couldn't happen. So is it really about privacy or is it about celebrities being like, I wanted the $500,000 for the images that I would have given to People Magazine exclusively and instead the paparazzi got whatever they got. Maddie, do we have um, do we have time for more? Yeah, keep going. I'm loving this. Yes, okay, okay, all right, great. Because I, I I could I could keep going. Just I I guess just let us let us know when um when we need to stop, um because I, I I will keep going. Um, so I want so your book, of course, you know I know that um you were doing the research for it or finishing it um as the 2016 election cycle was unfolding. And now here we are in 2020, and President Trump, who um, is himself the product of this celebrity writing about, 
is present. And as you mentioned in your um, in the introduction, in the context that you provided, um, one of the reporters you you were really close to was assaulted by Trump. And so I really want to um, I want to highlight this. I, I'd like you to speak just a little bit um, about that story and 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 the the kind of reputation that Trump had at people of being a sexual predator. Um, why you know like what his presidency says about um, the power dynamics and the cultural influence and importance of celebrity culture and um, you know moving forward um, as again we're approaching this you know we're getting ready to vote in two months now um, you know what's going on with your reporter friend um, yeah. Why is this not a big deal that our president is a serial <laughs> sexual predator? Um, just your yeah. thoughts on, on Trump and this. Oh, there's, there's so much to say here. Um, so yes, the story with Natasha, you know, I, I, I talk about this in the book and it's really, it's really quite remarkable because one of my early memories at the magazine um, was you know, for Halloween of 2004, just a few months before Natasha experiences this assault. We all at the magazine for Halloween dressed up as apprentices. And Were you? you know, I was just a generic apprentice. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't. I know you didn't watch that show. <laughs> um, but we had like so, you know, one of the editors was Donald and uh, one of the reporters was a sidekick. And then there was all of us. We came with our rolling bags and, you know, we were apprentices because, and the reason I think this is important is it because it shows how much attention Donald Trump was getting at the magazine, right? And so what's so fascinating is that the very people who were actually helping to grow his celebrity, people like Natasha, were also the ones suffering um, in right. very particular ways. So Natasha told me her story a few different times, but under the condition of anonymity, um, because she knew I was doing this, this research about uh, gender and, and race and, and celebrity. And we had a sense that something had shifted because she was doing all of this reporting on Trump and then suddenly she wasn't. Um, but she wanted to stay very private about it. And, you know, I say in the book that it's really a testament to her vulnerability, not her weakness. Because again, when we think about the sort of structural orientation, these structural inequalities, Natasha, you know, yes, she's a reporter at People Magazine, and that might seem like a very important position to some people, but in the context of the Hollywood industrial complex, it's not. It's very much in the service of celebrities um, and women in particular, um, get put into really problematic positions all the time. Trump, I think, you know, as, as the president, <laughs> um, has really been able to take everything that he learned about working with celebrity media to his advantage. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the ways in which Trump has really dismissed New York Times, LA Times, CNN, basically every mainstream news uh, outlet in this country has been sort of poo-pooed by Trump. 
And it's really what he, what I think he learned so well in dealing with celebrity media, which is like, you can chalk it up to gossip. You can dismiss it and say, it's not real. It's not real news. It's fake news, in fact. And so this language about fake news, the originators of quote unquote fake news are the tabloids, are the celebrity magazines and the tabloid newspapers that kind of have this relationship and this sort of sense of celebrities being able to kind of call it out and say, no, that's not real. And so Trump uses that. But with these outlets that have been sort of the arbiters of what like real news is in this country for generations, suddenly they're fake news. And so I think that that his ability to to kind of use that sense of things and foment hatred of mainstream news media outlets, it really mirrors how celebrities often relate to celebrity media producers, especially paparazzi and, and reporters. And he understands how to use media to generate interest. I mean, he revealed his Supreme Court nominee in an apprentice style, primetime television, you know, announcement. That's, that's everything he learned from being a reality TV star and working with um, with media, celebrity media specifically. And even, you know, this performance of anger towards the very media who gave him his candidacy and now the presidency and nonstop coverage, disparaging them as fake news and dishonest. Again, exactly the same way celebrities rely on paparazzi for shots for promotion while simultaneously performing hatred towards them. Um, I, one of the things I quote in, in my book is that he has this book, How to Get Rich, where he wrote specifically, if I happen to be outside, I'm probably uh, on one of my golf courses where I protect my hair from overexposure by wearing a golf hat. It's also a way to avoid the paparazzi, plus the hat always has a big Trump logo on it and it's automatic promotion. So he, in one sentence, says he wants to avoid the paparazzi while in the very next sentence revealing how he uses them to promote his own brand. This is a celebrity mm -hmm. tactic that I explore mm -hmm. a lot. Um, specifically in chapter four of the book. So he really, he knows what he's doing when it comes to media manipulation and this, and this sort of discourse of fake news that is at the heart of celebrity reporting and has been. Um, in terms of Natasha and where she's at and what happened with her story, so The Atlantic has actually recently been doing a series of expose articles about the different um, victims of sexual assault that have come forward including Natasha. She was actually the first. And they're written by E. Jean Carroll, who is the woman who's actually currently engaged in a lawsuit, active lawsuit with Trump. And so they are really trying to say, like, okay, this, you didn't pay attention four years ago. Can we pay attention now? And it's really hard to tell if it's going to make any difference. And I think that between what happened with, you know, the Supreme Court decision, um, you know, that, that we had a, a basically a trial of sorts for the last Supreme Court um, seat around similar grounds. And you can have on the one hand, someone like Harvey Weinstein get charged and arrested and imprisoned. Um, and these become these sort of symbolic triumphs for sexual assault. And yet you can have someone in a position like Trump who has all of these women you know, I think people don't believe it. It's, it's like so many things. People don't believe it until you know the person. And I know Natasha, and this is very close to me. And she told me these things, you know, five years before the, the presidency was on the table. So 
I think it says a lot about why the book's important because it, it really shows the degradation on these sort of intersectional levels of, of race and gender and class um, and the ways in which that degrada degradation has only increased in a Trump administration. It really, the book really speaks to the most pressing social issues of our time, but brings them into a context where we don't usually think about gender and racial oppression and, um, and labor exploitation um, in, in the realm of uh, celebrity production and manufacture. Okay, so one last question. Um, Skylight Books is a very frequent uh, site where celebrities like to go and where I know paparazzi who you've worked with uh, like to shoot them. So can you like just give us a little insight or any stories about um, celebrities and paparazzi at Skylight? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so it was just, I think it was maybe a month or two before the pandemic started that there was a really big sighting um, at Skylight with Angelina Jolie and a bunch of her kids. You know, she has many kids. <laughs> she was with the whole crew of them. And um, Galo and Lalo, two of the photographers who I write about in the, uh, in the book, the, what actually happened was, was Galo was out at a, a restaurant nearby and didn't have his gear with him, which is not common. And so he called Lalo and was like, I see an SUV, I think it's Angelina. And so Lalo zoomed right over and he got these incredible shots of, of Angelina and the kids coming out of the bookstore. Um, and that's just one example. Um, I know that, uh, that, that our, our friends from the bookstore have other stories too. Yeah, I can't talk too much about them because we are supposed to sort of like protect our <laughs> customers' privacy. But I will say one of the highlights of the pandemic was uh, Chris Pine walking out of Skylight with a big bag of books with the logo turned to the camera, good boy, uh, and wearing a mask, um, which was huge. That actually got us a ton of new business just because people had seen hot Chris Pine carrying books. They were like, we want to shop at this bookstore. So paparazzi shots can be used for good, for sure. And, and that's the thing is that the work they're doing, it serves all of these different interests. And it always has. I mean, one of the images in the book is Jennifer Aniston, who, as I said, is famously anti-paparazzi. She's smiling and holding her smart water bottle because everyone knows she has a deal with smart water. So when she's happy and ho showing her smart water because the paparazzi are basically amplifying the brand she gets paid to promote, it's all good. So there, there's so much to understand about the layers of of um of labor and exploitation and critique that really you know it's just like any community like is every paparazzo an impeccable person who's perfect and never made any errors no but that's not the case for that my colleagues at the university so um so how do we think about this work as something that is central to critical to the existence and continuation of Hollywood um, rather than as just a problem. That's a great place to, to leave it for our uh, listeners to ponder. Um, Vanessa and Elizabeth, thank you so much. What a great conversation. Uh, I mean, obviously this is of relevance, relevant interest to me because I live here in West Hollywood and I work in Hollywood and I'm interacting with stars all the time. Um, but 
I, I just think it's so fascinating to flip the camera and, and talk about the people behind that lens and, and the real um, workplace issues that they're dealing with, um, which are, you know, kind of in, intrinsic everywhere in the industry and we, we don't talk about it enough. So thank you so much for your work, Vanessa. Yeah, thank yes, you. thank you for your work, Vanessa. This is an amazing book. Thank you so much. Well, any last thoughts or words for our listeners before we say our goodbyes? Read the book, buy the book. <laughs> I, hey, if Chris Pine is shopping at Skylight and Angelina Jolie is shopping at Skylight, I hope that you uh, go to Skylight and pick up the book. <laughs> ah! <laughs> and maybe you'll get a picture with your favorite star. <laughs> you just might. You never know who shows up. It's a little harder to recognize them with the masks, but they still come in. <laughs> all right Vanessa and Elizabeth thank you again and lovely listeners thank you for your time and your attention we'll catch you on the next episode of Skylit signing off thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.